this class is basically going to be uh, discussing <coughs> what we do with the, with the crop that we don't use immediately. And the idea here is that we want to give you some information about how we keep our crops for the long term. How do we uh, preserve, uh, dry, dehydrate, we do uh, cellaring, uh, some cold storage, and uh, we'll be talking a little bit about canning, freezing, and, uh, and dehydrating, uh, and uh, some pickling too. We don't pickle very much. And one of the things that we really try to emphasize on our farm is that fresh is best. Uh, when you can use fresh product, uh, you're far better off than using any kind of a preserved product in any one of these forms. And the basis for our agriculture program is to show you how to do those things. We talked about uh, season extension in the last uh, class this morning and we try to take that to its full extreme meaning that we grow crops year-round on our farm in a part of the country that that's typically not done and unless you're above about 45 degrees latitude uh, that's a real possibility for you and I'm gonna uh, maybe share a little bit about how we kind of get that far into the growing season with things um, we had a lady here this morning that was talking about crops in her high tunnel that, uh, you know, are, are doing just fine at those far northern latitudes, but that things aren't growing this time of year. That's the case because the length of the days is so short. Uh, the, the timing of our crop becomes important because you want it to reach full maturity before it stops growing. But even a crop that's at full maturity at around uh, the first of the year, uh, you can harvest on through the succeeding months because the, the plant's really not growing. So you've got essentially field cold storage at that point. Things are stored right in the field for you and then you harvest them as you need them. This is true of things like our carrots and our, our, our beets and, and some of the other things that we have in the ground. Right now they're, they're mature, they're ready to harvest, but I don't have to harvest them because uh, if I pull them out of the ground and put them in a refrigerator, it's no different than leaving them where they are because they're refrigerated anyway. So fresh is best. I'm going to spend some time talking to you about curing crops. Most of you probably don't know what that involves, but uh, to give you a quick short definition, it's how do we manage the crops before we harvest them for storage? We had a friend over on Sabbath that had uh, a Sabbath uh, meal with us and he was complaining because he had a beautiful crop of butternut squash this year and he picked those butternut squash and they're all rotting on him right now. And it's not what he did after he harvested them, it's what he did before he harvested them that was the reason for that. So I'm gonna touch on that and that is, is, is part of what we're gonna be talking about as far as curing the crops for, for harvest and for storage too. Showed you this slide earlier this morning too, but what I want to emphasize here is that we want to use as much fresh product as possible. So let's plant our gardens, organize our gardens in such a way, using a combination of low tunnels, high tunnels, low tunnels inside high tunnels, to extend our growing season so that we can manage our crops. Most people are not aware that there are a lot of crops that can tolerate being frozen. 
and uh, lettuce is one of them. I actually grow a couple of varieties of red leaf lettuce even down to single digit temperatures. Now at night, these are unheated high tunnels and low tunnels and at night, by dawn anyway, uh, the temperature inside the, the, the season extension um, device is just the same as it is outside. I mean, if it's a five degree morning and I measure the temperature of that lettuce under a low tunnel like this at, at that time of the day, it's gonna be five degrees too. And it'll be frozen solid. And if you flick your finger on a lettuce leaf, it's gonna shatter just like a, a fine glass would. But by using the low tunnels, it does retain the heat once the sun comes up and creates temperatures in there that are warm enough, not just to thaw the lettuce out, but to actually keep it alive and let it grow on for, for, for a while more. Now, after lettuce goes through a cycle of maybe 10 times freezing and thawing, it starts to get a little bit bitter, but it's still good quality lettuce and you can harvest that lettuce in the afternoon after it's thawed out, you'd never know that it was frozen in most instances. So we do apply this to crops that are tolerant of, of being frozen. The crops that we store and what we're gonna talk about today are kind of in two categories. I'm gonna handle the first category here and then Lenita is gonna share with you what she does for, for the second category. But the, the, the crops that we store, largely corn in the way of cornmeal. Now, where we live, growing small grains is a real challenge. Things like wheat, rye, uh, barley, that type of thing. And it's partly because we have such a humid climate, it's difficult to grow those to a point where they can be harvested uh, without fungal disease damage. Corn is the exception to that. And uh, corn is one of our primary staple crops. We try to grow as much of our own food as possible. And we succeed pretty well at that. There are still things that we buy. We like avocados, we like pineapples, we like bananas, we like a variety of things in our diet. But at the end of the day, if, um, you know, if uh, the end of the day comes and we no longer have access beyond our farm, we are perfectly capable of being totally 100% self-sustained right on our farm. You know, that's, that's a feeling that is just amazing. Um, I've only had that feeling twice in my life as, as far as being aware that I can feed my family no matter what. And the other time that I had that feeling was when I paid off a mortgage and nobody else had any strings on my, on my land anymore. Um, the independence, the sense of independence that comes with being able to supply your food needs and your family's food needs is, is really a profound experience. And I say that because from my perspective, a lot of the problems that we see on the planet today stem from fear. I think the enemy's uh, greatest uh, avenue into disrupting God's order on, on, this, on this earth is to instill fear in us. And whether you realize it or not right now, you have a fear inside of you that's affecting every decision that you make that you're probably not even aware of. And that decision is, where's my food gonna come from? If you're not growing it yourself, you're relying or you are dependent on a system of bringing food to you, right? Okay, now you're probably not giving this a lot of conscious thought, but your subconscious certainly is aware of that. 
that creates a stress in our minds, that creates a, a sense of anxiety in our minds that can manifest itself in all kinds of different aspects of aberration in our thinking. When we have the capacity to feed ourselves as well as to draw breath ourselves without having to get that from someone else, as well as being able to have the water that we need for our physical needs, we've met all of our physical needs and that fear dissipates and goes away and the channels of our thinking are far clearer and far more capable of dealing with the real issues at hand which we know to be the great controversy and the issues surrounding that. So I really want to encourage you to take as much time and effort as necessary to put yourself in a position where you can meet that need and no longer be dependent on a system over which you have no control. Buying your food at Whole Foods, even if you're all organic and non-GMO and blah, 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 is not the same as growing it yourself. It's not the same quality, it's not the same nutritional value, and it's not the same spiritual food that you'll find if you've used your efforts, your hands, your family, your land to, to accomplish that. Corn in the form of cornmeal is one of our staples. We also grow dry beans and uh, we use those uh, on, on, a, on a very uh, frequent basis as a protein source. We grow winter squash and pumpkins. I'm gonna include those two together because they're very similar. In fact, a pumpkin is nothing but a winter squash with a different name. <laughs> Squash and pumpkin are basically the same thing when we're talking about the, the, the winter squash now. Uh, potatoes, sweet potatoes, onions, garlic, and herbs are all things that we store. And I'm going to address uh, most of these. Then Lanita will be talking to us about tomatoes, sweet corn, green beans, herbs, uh, peppers, berries, fruits. And the last few on this list are things that we store short term and uh, that's cabbage, beets, carrots, and turnips. And when I say short term, I'm talking about a period of 60 to 90 days. Now you can can those things, you can prepare them for long-term storage too, but since we have a constant input of food from our garden, we don't need to store them for a long period of time. And my preference, instead of making things like sauerkraut or canned beets or canned carrots, is to simply uh, store them for a brief period of time and then you know as we talked about the, uh, the the seasonal eating this morning to eat whatever is next in the in the crop cycle in compliance with that statement from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. <clears throat> I want to talk about something regarding food preservation that very few of you have probably given consideration of and this is curing the crop before storage or before even before harvest and basically this process of curing hardens the the plants off it builds sugars within the plant and it prepares the plant for a long period of dormancy or prepares the fruit of the plant for a long period of dormancy and this is uh, this is precisely the reason why my neighbors uh, squashed, butternut squash did not store this year because it was not properly cured prior to him putting it into storage. 
And curing it involves primarily drying the plant down uh, and allowing uh, the, the plant to harden off. In this hardening off process, potassium levels rise in the plant, which makes the cell walls more durable and uh, tougher, basically. It allows sugars to increase within the plant so that you be get better quality, better sweetness in, in, uh, in things like squash, uh, better uh, uh, mineral levels in things like corn and beans. And uh, it also raises the level of calcium, which is also involved in the cell wall structure within the plant to strengthen the cell walls and help it resist deterioration while it's in storage. So this curing process is important. In field corn, dry beans, winter squash, pumpkins, potatoes, sweet potatoes, onions, and garlic all go through this process prior and shortly after being harvested before we store them. All right. One of our most important crops uh, economically are the gar garlic and onions. Those actually are, are things that, that are very marketable in our area. They're fair, they grow fairly well in our area. But one of the challenges we have is, is storing them in our area. And uh, I am going to walk you through the process of what we do to accomplish that so that they don't rot after, after storage. <clears throat> We're going to start with a little discussion about field corn. And field corn, if you're supplying all of your own food on that two-thirds of an acre, working your half an hour a day, is going to involve growing some field corn. And uh, by curing it, what I do is I stop all irrigation on the crop once the ears are fully filled out, once the, the corn cobs uh, are, are, are fully shaped and the kernels of grain on the cobs are fully sized, stop watering. Now, that doesn't mean we don't get occasional rainfall. Uh, and it doesn't mean that we can dry the plant down completely that way. But the idea of cutting the water off means that carbohydrates that are stored in the root system and in the stem and stalks of the plants migrates into the fruit at that point at a much lower level of moisture and those calcium and potassium levels in the cell itself start to harden the seed, uh, the, the, the uh, cell walls and the moisture content in the food portion of the plant itself begins to decline a little bit and this increases sugars. If uh, you're one of those people that is into understanding and uh, concerned about the BRICS content in your food, this raises the BRICS level incredibly uh, by accomplishing this simply by stopping your irrigation. Uh, we use a method to dry our corn because uh, we're in a very wet area. We get a lot of rain in July and August. In fact, July is our wettest month in August, we can easily get four to five inches of rain, which is when the corn is starting to mature. So I try to plant the corn so that it's going to mature after that period of heavy rainfall. I want it to start to dry down in September and into early October for where we're located. Sometimes I can actually dry it down sufficiently in the field while it's standing in rows to harvest it. But most years, I have to use this method of shocking the corn in order to get it dry enough to, uh, uh, to, to really store for a long period of time. And uh, we had an old gentleman, this is a 
a, a dear friend of ours that's since passed away that came over and taught me how to shock corn because I had never done it before. And I'll just share with you what he taught me. See this, uh, this stand of corn here, the, the pile, the basically, basically a vertical pile of corn, is started by taking about a square yard and cutting all of the corn out of that area except for one plant on the corner of that square. So I've got four live rooted plants about three feet apart in a square. And after that, I start cutting the rest of the corn a couple inches above the ground and stacking it into that square using the, uh, the four plants with roots as anchors to keep it from blowing over and to keep it steady and upright. And then we simply took some of the leaves of the, of, of the corn and wrapped it around the center of it and bound it into basically a bundle or a shock. And at that point, the majority, except for those four plants, all of those no longer have roots. And when they don't have roots, they dry out more evenly. And by drying out more evenly and drying the ears while they're on the plant, all of that energy and carbohydrate within the plant now has moved into the seed, increased the nutritional value, the hardness, and the quality of that grain. Okay? Pretty straightforward. Once the, 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 the shocks have stood, this is actually a picture of when we were harvesting the corn off the shocks. This, this stack is fully dry. The, the other one that you were looking at there was at the green stage. Uh, but we left them shocked for about three weeks, three to four weeks, before we pulled the corn off and we harvested the corn. And then at that point, we can remove the ears if necessary uh, you can take those ears and move them indoors to continue to dry them until the cobs and the grain is fully dry. And by fully dry, when we're talking about agricultural products or seeds, we're talking about a moisture content in the seed that's less than 12%. If there's more than 12% moisture, you run the risk of it rotting on you. At 12%, it's dry enough, hard enough that it'll last for a long, long time. Now, how are you going to know when it's at 12%? Um, I actually use a pocket knife to make that determination. And what I'll do is I'll take a grain. I don't have one here to demonstrate with. I do have my pocket knife, though, because I'm a gardener, and we always carry a pocket knife. Um, but basically, if you take a, a, a sharp knife and you try to cut through that grain, instead of slicing through the grain, and this applies to beans and other, any other kind of seed, instead of slicing through it, what's gonna happen is it's going to crack or shatter on you. It'll, it'll, it'll simply shatter like, like glass when you drop it. And if it shatters, then you're below that 12%. And at that point, we shell the, the, the grain off the cobs, you can do that by hand, but it's a very tedious process and very difficult on your fingers. Uh, we have a small machine that my wife gave to me as a birthday present. Uh, that's uh, a corn sheller from uh, manufactured back around 1880, I guess. That's the machine that you see here. And basically, I put the ears in one end, and there's a rotating handle on the other side there that I'm cranking. and. It shells the, the grain off the cobs. The, the grain comes out of a chute on the bottom here, and then the cobs get spit out on, on the end. So we have shelled a lot of corn with that old machine. And uh, it, 
is something that's, that's still available today. Lehman's and some other companies have varieties, uh, different model styles of, of these that are still available today. But if you can find an old one, they're pretty cool to have. And it's nice to, to have that machine that's still made in use. Once we shell it off the cob, we have a neighbor that has a tractor uh, with a grist that, that powers a grist mill, a stone grist mill, and he actually grinds the corn for us for a small share. I usually give, you know, if we, if we do four or 500 pounds of corn, I'll give him 10% of it uh, for, for grinding it for us and usually give him enough money to cover the cost of his fuel to run his tractor. Um, but uh, there are other ways to get your corn ground too. Again, Lehman's has some hand crank grinding uh, apparatus that are available. Vitamix is one way that you can do it if you absolutely have to. Uh, uh, and there are other ways to get it ground. But anyway, we grind the corn, we seal it in plastic bags, and then drop it in the freezer for at least three or four days. And the reason for that is that we want to kill off any potential insects or eggs that might have gotten into the corn so that we don't have weevils or other things like that when it's in storage. <clears throat> uh, we then put it in a dark, dry place and, and store it. We, we grind about three to 500 pounds every other year. Uh, don't grow field corn every year, uh, but we, we, we grow it every other year, and then that two-year supply lasts us for that period of time. Now, one thing to be very careful of is to make sure that you have this product thoroughly dry when you go through this process. And the reason for that is that corn can host some really serious types of mold that can be very damaging to your health. So if you end up with a bag that smells musty or moldy, uh, that's something you don't want to use. Ergot is one, uh, one of the pathogens that, uh, that grains can, um, uh, can produce at this point. So you want to make sure that you've got it very, very dry when you go through this process. This is what the finished product looks like. Uh, we put it in quantities that are useful to us in a short period of time, which is basically a gallon bag full of cornmeal. It's about a three pound amount of cornmeal there. And we have two different types that we grow. Uh, the one on the right is called Bloody Butcher. It's a red kerneled corn variety. Uh, the one on the left is uh, Boone County White. I have some seed for that available at our, our, at our table over here. That's a really productive corn. The, those plants grow to about 14 feet tall. The ears can be 15 to 18 inches long. And uh, when we grew that last time, I shelled three quarters of a pound of grain from one ear. <laughs> so it's, it's a good one. And it, it makes really good cornbread too. We grow popcorn also. And uh, this is the final product of the popcorn. It goes through the same process. I love popcorn. This is a variety called Amish Red. And uh, it's, it's by far my favorite popcorn. And uh, we're, we're popcorn self-sufficient too in our food supply these days. Um, curing beans is very similar in that you want to stop the irrigation when the beans are fully formed. I'm talking about dry beans now. These are dry beans for storage. And um, when the seed is fully formed, you want to cut the water off at that point. No more irrigation. Um, and this is also when the skin on the, on the bean itself is, is not easily injured. It'll still come off the bean. The beans are still wet and green at this point. Uh, but when the seeds are, are, are when the skin is, is fully ripened and dense 
And you can tell this because the pods themselves will start to begin to split. About 10% of the pods will, will start to crack open. That's when it's time to harvest the beans. And at that point, what I suggest is you go out and you basically, in, in, in commercial use, we do this with a tractor and use what's called a bean knife that goes through and basically cuts the plants off at ground level. And uh, the, the thing that we want to accomplish is the same thing, only with the small quantities that you're growing in your home garden. You can par use a pair of loppers or just use a sharp knife. But cut those bean plants off from the root system. And this is for the same purpose as the shocking that we did in the corn, to allow that vine to dry out completely. And for all of those carbohydrates and all of those uh, proteins and phytochemicals to enter that bean seed before you harvest it so that you get the maximum nutrition, the maximum quality, and the maximum capacity to, to get a, a long storage period in that seed. Uh, when 10% of the pods have cracked open, uh, that means that uh, the, the crop is ready to then be harvested or threshed. And uh, one of the easy ways to accomplish this with beans, especially if you don't have too many of them, is to just take the plant by the cut end, put it in an empty trash can, and take all your frustration out. Just beat the daylights out of it. And this will uh, do uh, one of two things. It'll either just knock the pot off into the trash can and leave you with leaves and debris and all the stems in your hand, or it will shell the beans for you too, cracking the pods open and, and, and getting them into the bottom of the can. But it's just a way of, of separating the pods. You don't have to sit there and pick off every pod from, from these dry plants. If you choose to do that, that's fine too. This is just a way to do it on a little larger scale. You want to finish drying the, the, the seeds indoors. For those that didn't shell out of the pods, you want to shell them. Uh, and uh, basically at that point you can separate all the chaff, the pods, and the leaves and the debris from the seed simply by putting all of that product in a five gallon bucket uh, and slowly pouring it from one five gallon bucket into another five gallon bucket with a, a box fan behind you to blow off the debris. Do you follow me? And, and just use that as a way of air separation. You don't want to blow the seeds away. You don't want to blow the crop away, but it'll, the, the seeds are going to be dense and heavy at that point, and that's pretty easy to separate with a fan. If you do that twice, I've never had to do it more than twice to end up with pure, clean beans in, in the bucket. Once you have that, then you can bag, again, temporarily freeze those beans uh, for the same reason, to eliminate insects or worms or any potential eggs that are there and store it in a cool, dark location, okay? They don't have to be stored in the freezer, but freezing them for three or four days prior to dry storage is a good idea. With squash and pumpkins, one of the important things is to consider when you plant those squash and pumpkins, make sure they have plenty of nutrient in the soil before you plant them. And I say that because sometimes in some gardening uh, uh, ways of, of, of supplying nourishment to your plants, uh, they will suggest that you add some fertilizer or compost during the growing season. This is not a good idea with squash and pumpkins. And I'll explain why as we get through uh, the other stages of this curing. But you want to have all the fertility in place before the crop is planted. 
Again, once your fruits are fully formed, once that butternut squash or that pumpkin or that kabocha squash is, is, is formed and, and, and shaped to, uh, to where it's going to be, stop your irrigation once again. Let that plant start to dry out. They'll usually let you know when this time arrives because the vines themselves will start to die back a little bit. The tips of the vines will, will start to wither a little bit and at that point, cut the irrigation off and let them continue to dry down. And you want to harvest your fruits only after the skin is too hard to be perforated with your thumbnail. You can just take your thumbnail and try to poke it into the pumpkin or into the squash. And if you break the skin, it's not hard enough yet. That means it needs more drying time. And if it resists that, it might leave a little, you know, a little blemish on the, on the surface of the skin, but you won't break through the skin. And the other indication that it's fully ripe is that the stem should be dry and really hard too when you, when you cut the stem. <clears throat> what we do with ours at that point is we bring it in from the field and we wash any debris or soil or anything off the fruits and then we dry them thoroughly after that either allowing them to air dry or even in some instances if we have uh, rain threatening or something uh, we'll, we'll dry them off with a towel uh, but you want the skins to be completely dry uh, before you try to to, to store them uh, most squash benefit from a period of what's called dry curing for about three to four weeks after you harvest them. And that dry curing is basically exposure to temperatures uh, in the high 70s to low 80s for a period of, of, of three to four weeks. And that really enhances the flavor of pumpkins and squash to do that. Oftentimes, you know, we've, we've heard the, the wives tale about uh, not harvesting the pumpkins until after a frost. And the reality is that that's a, a shortcut way of accomplishing some of this because the frost is going to kill off the vine. It's going to cut off that moisture of, from the root system from entering the pumpkin. And it's going to uh, basically harden the pumpkin in kind of a flash kind of way. But it's not as effective as going through these steps. And the reality is that uh, by dry curing and harvesting those before it gets that cold, you'll have a much better quality product that'll taste much better and will last much longer too. We then store our pumpkins in, at, at, at room temperature in a dry, dark location. Uh, and as I said, leaving them out until the last frost, that can be a little bit risky for long-term storage. Um, we have butternut squash that we have uh, stored for up to 16 months and not had rot on us. So, uh, and, and it's this hardening process, the drying down, the field curing, and the hardening process that allows us to do that. Um, my neighbor the other day when he was sharing with me, he harvested his pumpkins in October and he's having rot problems already. Uh, and was really disappointed that his problems were wrong. He thought it was because of where he had them stored, that the area wasn't good, but the reality was his crop wasn't good for storage because he didn't process it this way. A real important crop to us as a staple are potatoes. We grow 
typically three different varieties of potatoes, but only one is really our favorite. We grow the other ones for the same reason that we talked about growing a variety of different things this morning, and that is for uh, food security. If we happen to have a bad year for this variety, we want other potatoes to take their place. But again, with potatoes, we try to plant them early in the season to help avoid some insect cycles. It is actually uh, uh, makes uh, storing the potatoes a little more difficult because by planting them early, we avoid some problems like the Colorado potato beetle and uh, the Phytophthora late blight that affects uh, potatoes. But it means that we're harvesting them in July. And that's not prime weather for storing potatoes, is it? It's, it's hot outside, it's moist, it's muggy, it's very wet. Um, so what we do is as soon as the potatoes finish blooming and once the potatoes are, are, are pretty fully formed, the vines will start to die back a little bit. And when that process of, of, of dieback begins, I stop all irrigation at that point. Again, for the same reasons as the corn and the beans and the other crops to build sugars, to build carbohydrate, and to transfer those potassium compounds and calcium compounds into the potato themselves. <clears throat> and once those vines are, have completely died back, then we're prepared to dig them. And at that time, the potato skins should not be easily damaged. The potato skins themselves should be should be pretty tough. Now, I'm talking here about potatoes that we are harvesting for storage. You can use fresh potatoes and harvest them all along in this process too. I'm speaking specifically for storage here. We only dig our potatoes when the soil is dry enough so it doesn't leave mud on the skins. And in our uh, circumstance, that's not a real easy thing to do because we're harvesting in July and July is our wettest month. So it's a rare thing that we can go out and harvest our potatoes without at least having some mud or clumps of soil stuck to the potatoes. If the ground is dry enough, the potatoes will come out of the ground fairly clean. And that's, that's what we desire, but in our soils, that's just not always achievable. But we try not to, uh, try not to dig them uh, when there's enough moisture in the ground to leave mud on the skins. And if there is, we wash our potatoes. Now, I've had a lot of discussions with potato growing people over the years about whether to wash or not to wash your potatoes before storage. And in my experience, as long as your potatoes are clean, they don't need to be washed. But if they do have dirt on them, yes, wash them before you store them but it's important that you thoroughly dry them after washing them before you place them in storage. Uh, what we do, we have uh, large black crates that are ventilated crates, they're bulb crates, and most of the time we have to wash our potatoes, so I bring them in, and the first thing that we do is, we, since we've pulled them out of a moist soil and we have a lot of pressure from fungal diseases uh, where, where we live, I just let them sit in a covered area, we use our, 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 our barn basically, our gym building. Uh, I leave them in these crates for about four or five days and then we will sort through these potatoes because some of them, if they're damaged, can already start to show evidence of rotting at that point uh, because of the moist conditions that we're in. And we'll separate those out and at that point we'll wash the rest of them, put them back in the crates, 
put them back in a covered area, and then I run a fan on them for about four or five days to completely dry the potatoes. And once they're completely dry, they're clean, then you can move them into uh, a storage area. And for storing potatoes, you want an area that's dark, but also, uh, that, but also has some air movement so that those uh, potatoes stay dry, meaning you don't want to enclose these in a plastic bag or in, a, in a, uh, you know, a, a bin of some sort with a lid on it. You want it to be open and exposed to the air. And you need to keep them where the temperature will not go below 43 degrees. And the reason for that is that um, they'll, they'll store at a temperature below 43 degrees, but you'll start to get some, um, uh, some cold damage in the center of the potatoes at that temperature. And that'll eventually blacken. Uh, sometimes you'll just get a tough uh, streak of, of potato material in the middle of the potato. But potatoes are pretty easily damaged if they're stored too cold. And 43 degrees is kind of the, the important number to keep in mind there. Sweet potatoes are pretty much the same as all the others. This, this process of curing, as I said, is basically intended to build the content of potassium, calcium, and carbohydrate in the plant and allowing all of the nutrients that are in the stems and the leaves to migrate into the plant. So again, with sweet potatoes, before you harvest them, cut the water off at least 30 days prior to harvest. Let the plants mature and cut the water off and leave them there. And you want to harvest them with sweet potatoes. Again, many people wait until the vines just die back with frost and harvest them. But you're really better off harvesting them before the warm weather ends so that you have some time for curing because they, like some of the squash, like to be held at temperatures of about 80 degrees for three weeks before we store them. And in storing sweet potatoes, they don't like cool temperatures, they like room temperatures. So those need to go into uh, some form of storage where you've got a dark location, but it's at, at relatively room temperature. I'm going to say between 50 and 70 or 50 and 75 degrees for storing potatoes. Doing that process can allow your potatoes to last for a really, really long time. Uh, this is a sweet potato that we grew the first year that we were in West Virginia. Uh, I grew them actually in a high tunnel. And this potato, when we harvested it, weighed nine and a quarter pounds. And uh, we kind of kept it as a centerpiece for a while. And I was curious about how long it would last. And we got to a little over two years and I finally cut it open because I was curious. I thought, surely this thing isn't edible anymore. And I was somewhat right. There were some black spots in it and there was some damage in it at, at 26 months old. <laughs> so uh, that uh, just indicates that the, the value of hardening things off, of curing the crop before you harvest it is really important. Two of the most important crops for us economically and also because we like them a whole lot are onions and garlic. And again, because we have a moist climate, uh, they're a little bit challenging to grow in West Virginia and to cure for long-term storage. Uh, and by curing, again, I'm talking about drying down. So what we do is we try to time the planting of our onions, uh, and this is for outdoor grown onions. Uh, we try to time the planting so that our harvest will be during a relatively dry period, which for us is September. 
Usually by the second week of September, the humidity levels start to drop. We still get rain after that, but the amount of humidity in the air uh, drops real dramatically about the second week of September. So we want to try to time our outdoor grown to, uh, um, onions so that we're harvesting them about that time. Uh, the reality for us is that we're most successful growing our onions under a high tunnel so that we keep rainfall off of them and we can keep them dry and harvest them earlier in the year. Now these are good money-making crops for us, both garlic and onions. So I like to have, be able to harvest them as soon as I can during the summer farmer's market season. So for that reason, I have seedlings that are sprouting in my greenhouse right now that are gonna get planted in a high tunnel uh, by uh, about the second week of March and we'll be harvesting those in June. And uh, in order to, uh, to, to be able to do this successfully and to have some of those onions will sell fresh, but many of them will sell as dry onions too, we've got to cut the water off and let them dry down and cure. And that means for the onions, no water within 20 days of harvest. After harvest, uh, basically we pull the onions out. We need to let the entire plant dry thoroughly. And uh, you know, some people do this by hanging onions. Uh, we uh, grow so many that that's not practical for us and we don't really have a, a, a dry enough environment even to hang them. So we're lucky, we've got a school building with lots of classrooms. And uh, we actually use one of the classrooms for, for, for curing our onions and our garlic. And basically what I do is, is I uh, take a bunch of old pallets and put them on the floor and we spread the onions out on these pallets, in some instances just on the, the bare floor itself. I close all the doors and the windows of this room and we put a dehumidifier in there and run it for about three weeks. The dehumidifier pulls the moisture out of the onions. I've pulled as, as much as 12 gallons of water a day out of that dehumidifier and this, that, that room is, is a little bit smaller than this one is. So that's a whole lot of moisture in the atmosphere and a whole lot of moisture in the onions that we're, we're, we're getting out of there before we can store them. Uh, before we can store them. Uh, in other climates, you don't have to go to that extreme, but for us, that's an important step is to getting them fully dry too. Once they're dry, uh, we store them in, in crates like the ones that you see in this photo here, again, where there's plenty of air movement, low light levels, and uh, we've stored uh, the, the onions that I harvested uh, at the beginning of July uh, last year, uh, we're still making use of. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll store for us for, for a good, you know, nine months, uh, and some of them last longer than that, but we can store them reliably, reliably for about nine months. <clears throat> um, these are just some of the different varieties that we grow, and uh, an example of how we storm. I don't storm in that location. That's under a chalkboard in the building, in the room that we dried them in. We store them in a dark room, typically, but uh, that's all we do. Um, I'll talk just briefly about herbs here, and then I'm going to turn this over to uh, my very capable wife that is going to talk about the things that you really came to this class to hear about, because you didn't think you were going to hear about curing, did you? Um, Herbs are, are important to us too. Uh, they're a good marketing item, but more uh, uh, for our use, we do it primarily for our own use. We don't just feed ourselves, but we also feed folks that come through our classes. 
during the course of the year. And, uh, uh, you know, we feed a lot of people, so we need a lot of stuff. And uh, the, the herbs that we grow are kind of predicated on that quantity. This isn't something that I sell a lot of at the farmer's market. And we grow basil, dill, oregano, rosemary, and cilantro primarily. And uh, uh, these are, are, are really fairly simple. We've got a couple of different methods for, uh, for drying these. I'm going to let Lenita talk a little bit when she starts here about uh, another method she uses uh, using ice cube trays. Uh, for, for storing some of our herbs, but basically we just cut them and we hang them in a dry location, dark, dry location, uh, let them dry down. Uh, this is basil that's hanging in one of our rooms here and uh, we'll have newsprint or something on the floor so as the leaves dry down and fall off the plants, we can collect them and uh, basically let it dry again until the plants thoroughly dry. Before hanging this basil up, again, I cut the water off. I don't water the day before I harvest this stuff. I let the plants stress out for moisture before we harvest them. And that includes all the herbs that we just talked about for storage. Again, to harden the leaves and to give us a better opportunity to uh, have good quality product. Some of the crops that we grow, we dehydrate. I'll let Lenita talk to you a little bit about that. Uh, the point I want to stress here, though, is that it's as important about how we go about preparing our crops for storage before they're harvested as it is uh, whatever the steps are that you take after you harvest the crop, whether it's freezing, canning, drying, or whatever. You want a really good quality product uh, in order to go into that period of storage. And the curing process and the, uh, you know, the steps that you take culturally with the crops prior to that are really important. Uh, in many instances, folks will harvest green beans, for example. Uh, they'll finally get sick of eating green beans, so they decide they're going to can the rest, so they just kind of scavenge the last uh, um, you know, portion of the crop because they don't rogue like I rogue. Uh, we talked about that this morning. Uh, and you end up with kind of a mediocre product that way. Why not have the best that you can have, both uh, fresh and with the stored product that you either freeze or dry. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org.